I'd like you to open your Bible to the book of Psalms, chapter 43, and for a moment in chapter 25. We're going to stay in 43. Psalms 43 and Psalms 25. Now, in 43, he said this, verse 2, For thou art the God of my strength. Why dost thou cast me off? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? To labor the point, have you ever been there? Thou art the God of my strength. I recognize that my strength comes from you. I don't have of myself that kind of strength, but you give me that. Therefore, I embrace that. I claim that as being mine, and I'm counting on that in my life. But... It doesn't seem like I'm very strong. Have you ever been there? I want to identify with you. I want you to identify with the message. It seemed like what God said is either slow coming or I'm misunderstanding it or misinterpreting this. He said, Lord, you're the God of my strength. Why am I mourning or moaning? Why am I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy. And I'm going to come right back to that. Let me read Psalms 25 and verse 17. He said, The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Oh, bring me out of my distresses. I can relate to that. I, like you, we have had moments in our Christian life when it was just absolutely wonderful. It was a hilltop life. Everything you did turned out well. You went to church. You sang with exuberance. Your feet were light, and you were so glad-hearted. It just seemed like everything was falling in place just like God promised. And yet God doesn't leave us there living only when it feels good to be excited. He lets us have those days in which it's not exactly like that, but you still have the truth that he's with you for you and he has not forsaken you. You feel forsaken. That's a real experience. You feel like you've been forsaken, that God has let you down or God has let you off. But see, he would be denying himself if he did that because he said in Hebrews 13 and verse 5, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It doesn't mean you won't feel like you've been forsaken. That's part of life. It's part of growing up. It's part of the maturing process that God runs us all through. If we were a psalmist and we wrote, we would write things like this. Why do I go, back in Psalm 43, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Last week we talked about encouragements from God's word. I want to talk today about dealing with discouragement. Because all of us do, to some degree or another, some longer and some shorter. But everybody, at some point in your life, or maybe numerous times in your life, you're going to deal with discouragement. Something will either let you down, you'll feel let down, you'll do something wrong, you'll miss it or mess up or something. And it will bother you. It will mentally bother you. It will have the effect, as Psalm 25 said, of distressing you. And when you're distressed, or why go I 
mourning because of the oppression of the enemy. This oppression is a form of distress in various ways. You're just down. It's just something that weighs on you and wants to push you down. And we all know that's what the devil does. You know, the devil comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. Whatever he can to make miserable your life or to talk you out of God's word or to question God. Whatever he can do, he will. See, the devil and his crowd walk by sight. They figure everything out by how they feel or what they see. But with God, it's by faith. We take God at his word. If he said it's true, it's, it's true because he said it. Not because I feel it, not because I look like it, but because he said it, it's true. And so it's not easy to just walk by faith because so much seems to resist it. So much seems to come against it. And you've had those days. You know what I'm talking about. You've had those kind of days. Doesn't your Bible say the oppression is of the enemy? Throughout the New Testament talks about what the devil is trying to do to defeat us and to defeat our faith. It's called the oppression of the enemy. It's a form of discouragement. Now, discouragement has a lot of definitions. A lot of words define discouragement, but sometimes the word is defined by hopelessness. Because if you stay discouraged long enough, you'll give up hope. You'll just let go. It's not for me. won't work. Don't think I can make it. It's over my head. It's a feeling of rejection from the Lord or this, again, this depression, this mental anguish that you may have or dismay. And it affects not only your mental game, but it also affects how you live. It can make you angry. You get mad at God. You know, I tried one thing, I tried, I went, and it didn't work. Or you can be angry about a lot of things when you're discouraged. You become pessimistic. Nothing really is going to work. I mean, you can't trust anybody and nothing's for sure. I mean, just watch a weather report. You never know. Because you're negative and you're pessimistic. You can only see the gloom side of life because that's what you're experiencing. Nothing's working for you. How do you know it'll work for anybody? Well, I went to that church. I heard all of that. Yeah, but, that, you know, uh, how many people did it not work for? Look how many people fell away, quit, died, or got sick. Must not be the truth. And you get discouraged. And you don't realize when you're discouraged about something that God has said and you can't connect, you have nothing to fall back on. There is absolutely nothing to turn back to that will replace it. Nothing. The life you came out of as an unsaved person was the most miserable, complicated life you've ever known. You were never sure of anything then, and God alone, you know, God, since he brought you in, is beginning to open your eyes and show you what all is yours. Doesn't feel like it, doesn't look like it, why isn't it working? You know, you're the God of my strength, why am I mourning? Why am I so weak? Remember the psalm in Psalm 137, said, by the rivers of Babylon... There we hung our harps in the willows. Remember that? They were carried off in captivity. These were God's people. Isaiah, they all warned them. This is coming. God described them as having abandoned God. They had forsaken God. They despised God. These were God's words of how he viewed the religious, spiritual activity of his people. 
Oh, they brought their sacrifices. You read Isaiah chapter 1. They were very religious. They brought their oblations and they brought their sacrifices and their animals and they observed the days and the new... They did all of that. They never gave up religion. But their heart was none of it. None of it. They worshipped idols. They wasted time. They did stuff wrong. Didn't like each other. Treated each other bad. Murmured, gossiped, and complained. And God warned them, said, you cannot do that and do well. Because when God eases back, he didn't say he would forsake you, but when he eases back from you, and you no longer have that comfort that he gives, you have nothing to fight with, you have no hope for tomorrow. Everything goes blank or murky. And you begin to, whatever they did. But they went to Babylon. Captivity. They took the people out of the land. They destroyed this and destroyed that and carried them away captive all the way over to Babylon, to Iraq. They were there for 70 years. But the people in Babylon had heard about them, how excited they were, how undiscouraged or non-discouraged or how encouraged the Jews were. And they only did that because of their worship. But when they get together to worship, because I've been there, I've watched them do the horror, that dance, you know, watched them do that and just smiling and laughing and having a big time. And the people heard about that. Said, you people are noted for your singing and your loud praise and your worship. You seem like you have glad hearts. You're not just religious people singing first, second, and fourth stanza, but there's something spontaneous that comes out of your heart. We like that. Sing us one of those songs of Zion, they said. And you remember what they said? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? We're captives. All of our joy is gone. We're discouraged. But you know what? Your discouragement, not God's fault, is it? We'll get to it at the end of the message because of sin. You just casually relate to God. You take God for granted. You're not really serious and not really sincere. And when these things happen, it's just like when in Isaiah 1, when they brought all these sacrifices to God, he said, I don't want that. I've had enough of your sacrifices. I don't want your oblations and your offerings and your observance of days. You despise me. I don't want that. I don't receive it from you. They didn't take that serious either. Oh, surely he will. I think all of us, again, have battled discouragement in some form or the other. We found ourselves on occasion fainting, losing interest, not as excited or as involved as we used to be. Maybe that would be attributed to discouragement. Or we found ourselves saying, I can't. Drawing back. We're warned about that. I mean, the Bible speaks of it. Don't draw back. Don't give up. Don't faint when you're rebuked of the Lord. Everybody that God loves, he chastens. It's a part of his changing of your life and maturing you. Don't give up. Yeah, but look what's going on. Look what's happened. I know what's happened. Every bad thing that's happened to you hadn't caused God to quit loving you. He hasn't forsaken you. He said he would not. How many of you have been born again? 
Listen, if you have been born again, God said he would never leave you nor forsake you. But he did say he would chasten you. He said he would chasten you because he loves you. And he's not going to leave you alone. You know, just like a parent who wants their child to grow up right. They don't leave them alone and let them do what they want to. They teach them. They train them and chastise them. Doesn't feel good when you're being chastised. And a kid may say, well, my parent doesn't love me. Yes, they do. They just don't want you to stay like that. They love you because they want you to change and be a decent, moral, good, spiritual kind of person, citizen of God's kingdom. That's why they deal with you and make you mine, teach you manners, or even go so far as to teach you how to talk so you can get a job someday. Communicate. It's just part of what you do when you care. How I many of you know God cares about us? And sometimes his process of changing us leaves us feeling discouraged. We feel like God doesn't care. God's got to deal with our feelings. That thing is lodged in you. He's got to get it out of you. You don't live by feelings. You live by faith. It doesn't seem like it's working as it should. Let me give you a couple examples here. Remember the story, I know you do, in 1 Samuel 30 about David at Ziklag. Remember that? They went out and fought, and they came back, and all their stuff was gone. Their tents were burned. Nobody was killed. And the Bible said, I think in verse 6, David was greatly distressed. Here is a man that could do no wrong. Even while he's running from King Saul, hiding in caves and everything, and the guys that run with him are not the nicest guys in the kingdom. But everything he does works. And one day it comes back. Church, it didn't work. Something's wrong. Everything's not just falling in place for us like we were taught, like sometimes it has. We come back to our camp, and everything is gone. Everything you love the most is gone. All the spoil you brought back can't even compare to your loss. As far as you know, it's lost. It looks like it's lost, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I mean, it did to him. But the treasure wasn't lost, his family. He didn't know that. And like we don't know what's going on sometimes. But, oh, God. And the Bible said David was greatly distressed. Now, that word distress was weighted down. He was in a strait. One of those times in your life when you really don't know what to do, if you even want to do anything at all. I look, I'm serving God, and look what I get for it. But the Bible said that David encouraged himself in the Lord. Now, that's what teaching and commitment to God will do in your life. Even when you're down, you'll seek the Lord out. You have to go before God. You have to start with any kind of crisis. I know you are right. I know you can do no wrong. I know you're in charge. I know that all things are under your control. I know that. Didn't the Bible say that we are to plead our case? Now, Lord, I'm telling you what I've been taught. You're in charge. You're God. You're sovereign. Nothing is beyond you. Nothing is too hard for you. You're the one I'm coming to. You're the source of my strength. This is why I'm going to make it. It's because of you. I'm going to tell you that. Not because he doesn't know it, but this is what's in your heart that you know. You don't go in there slobbered and cry. Oh, my God. 
You say, now, wait a minute. Now, Lord, I know you're in charge. Now, what's going on here isn't right. I told the Lord that the other day about something. You know, about some kind of a, oh, situation, personal thing. And I said, now, Lord, you know, what's going on here is not right. You didn't make it like that. This is not the way you made it to be, and it's not right. And I know, therefore, that if it's made, if I was made to, to, to be a certain way or to go a certain way, that's the way I should go. Now, if I'm not going that way or able to go that way because of some problem, I know the problem doesn't come from you. It comes from the devil. Now, I know that. I've been taught that. I want to encourage myself in the Lord first. Now, I know what you said is true. You said by his stripes and on and on and on and on. Therefore, therefore, I choose to cast all of my care, worry, or anxiety about what's going to happen. I choose to cast that over on you, and I'm not going to go back and get it. I leave it there. And I will take no thought. Now, that's how I encourage myself. You know what? It doesn't mean the pain goes away. It doesn't mean you feel better. It doesn't mean all of a sudden everything goes, ah, I'm well again, or I'm right again, or whatever again. You stated your case. Faith is in process now. It's operating. You may have to walk a while before you feel it or see it, but I know God is faithful, that he watches over his word. He watches over his word to perform it. He said what he sent it to do, he'll, he'll make it work like that. If you believe it. Even though for a while, it doesn't look like it. How many of you know that if a hunter with a bow and he has an arrow and he lets that arrow go, it's a perfectly well-placed shot when he lets it go. How many of you know the deer is not dead because he shot it, because he shot his arrow? The arrow has to get to the deer first, doesn't it? And then once the arrow has to get to the deer, once the arrow gets to the deer, it has to penetrate. It has to go into the vitals. I don't want to get too gory here. But it would have to do what has to be done. And that takes a little while. It doesn't happen instantly. It probably could, but it takes a while. Our relationship to God is that way. We follow instructions and we wait on the work that he has to do. In the meantime... The devil says, well, see, it ain't working. See, it ain't going to work. It's not going to work, is it? Didn't you pray? Yeah, but it didn't work, did it? And we get discouraged. I know I do. I know I have about a number of things in my life, just like David at Ziklag. But what happened at Ziklag? Did it turn out all right? David prayed. He strengthened himself in the Lord. I don't know what he said, but he came back, and the people who wanted to stone him finally said, we'll follow him. They went, captured a guy, told them where their stuff was. They went and got all their stuff back. It works like that. In the book of Numbers, remember the 12 spies? You know the story. And these men who went out as spies were not ordinary men. They were one man from each tribe. If a tribe had 200,000 people, one man would be the big deal in that tribe, wouldn't he? They didn't send out newcomers. They didn't send out some kid that doesn't pay attention they sent out established men, men of respect, men that whenever they came back and told us what they saw, we could believe them because these are seasoned and mature men that we trust, one from each tribe. And you remember the story. They went in, looked at the land, and when they came back, 10 of those men 
addressed their tribe, and they said, yeah, but the land is indeed. Oh, it's everything we would ever want. Man, it's 5,000 square feet with five bathrooms. You know, it's like everything you could probably want. Well, good. But now, wait a minute. Every place we went, we saw soldiers. We saw well-armed armies. Down in the valleys and the lower places, we found chariots of iron. Arrows won't even penetrate them. And the people were fierce. We saw some people that were so big that we were scared. I mean, they were giants. Really, yeah. And can you imagine us taking our children and our kids and going in here and just walking up and, and overcoming these people? I mean, look at us. We're all just a bunch of young guys, which is good. Nobody's over 40 except Moses and Joshua. I mean, they're 80. They started at 80. Joshua did. But anyway, so they came back, and they said, you know, I'm just going to level with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot straight at you. I'm really glad to hear all the talk at Moses and the Bible and quoting God. I think that's good. I think it's, it's good for us to hear what God has to say. And when, you know, God said he'd give us the land, I, folks, I, I don't. I don't want to be naive. I don't want to mislead you all to think that we're just going to go in there and take the land. Folks, we're not able to do this. We can't do it. We're just not capable of overcoming what we saw. Sure, we'd like the land. Yes, Corey, but you want to die in this place? We can't do it. Now, here's what they said about that in Numbers chapter 32 and verse 7. He said, for when they went up into the valley of Eshcol and they saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel that they should not go into the land which the Lord had given them. Who discouraged the people? People. Who discourages people today? People. People talk to you. People tell you it won't work. Talk. Messengers. I think a lot of messengers today in this new age, they call it, that we're in, in which things of value and priceless things are being set aside as not necessary today, like faith and stuff like that. And I think there's a great misleading today, a great tragic misleading of God's people today in, in the world. Because if you come out and you say, we can do all things through Christ. Let us rise up at once. Let's go into the land. Let's take the land. We are more than able to do it. And all these people said more than able to do it. You're a dreamer. You're just dreaming. You think God, and that's what he said. Caleb said, of course God will. Didn't he say he gave us the land? Didn't he say it's ours? We haven't gotten in there yet, have we? But is it ours? Wait a minute. You're saying it's yours before you even get there? Then why are you discouraged now? Why is it you think, oh, I don't know if it'll work or not? Why would you say that? Is it because you don't know if it'll work for you? Is it because somebody of importance and eloquence or whatever to you told you that you can't do it and therefore you're convinced that what a man said is true rather than what God said? Because if we tell people what God said, people think we're just weird. 
Oh, they say, yeah, we like the Bible. We don't mind you preaching about it, but there's no way you can believe it. It's just over our heads. It's too good to be true. What things ever you desire, oh, come on. These signs shall follow the raise of the sick. Come on. When's the last time you saw somebody raise from the dead or had their eyes healed or their teeth fixed? Or what? When's the last time you saw that? Huh? Come on. People talk people out of the truth. It's the words of man that discourage man because they tell us it won't work, and yet we read it and we say, but you're the God of my strength. You said you were. Right there you said you were. Why am I, why am I so... I'm getting gloomier by the minute, Lord, because somebody has told you it won't work. You believed it. You believed it. Lord, why, why am I? Oh, Lord, what's going on here? And God said, the people that teach you, the people that spoke to you have discouraged you. See, discourage means lack of courage. When you have courage like Joshua had, be of good courage. How many times did you tell him that in Joshua 1? Be of good courage, be of good courage. See, courage doesn't go backward. Courage goes forward. Courage doesn't mean you see the victory before the victory begins. Courage just means that you're convinced you can do it. When you have courage, you face your foe. It's like it's not how big the dog is in a dog fight. It's how big your heart is. And if God has encouraged your heart, you're ready to go. Uh, you may tremble like, <laughs> but you know if God said you can, you can because you have courage. But when you're discouraged, you're not convinced of all this. You don't know if you can do it or not. You have a tendency to draw back and, oh, man, I hope I can see a new movement begin similar to what I was in once myself, especially amongst you young folks. While you're whippersnapper ages, you know, you're vibrant. You're the one that are probably the most able to go to the most places and inspire the most people. The Joshua's of your life, men like myself, you know, we've, we kind of sit back and holler at you when you come in. But I hope you get this message. I do. I hope you find yourself not willing to believe anything that's not in the Bible and let nothing outside of the Bible ever discourage you. That nobody ever gets you to sit around and talk about why it doesn't work and why it can't work. And I don't know what. I hope you get all that stuff out of your life and you sit around and say, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If God said it, it's true. There are conditions when we know that, but we know it's true. Let me tell you something else about discouragement. That involves kids. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, about parenting, fathering. Fathering our sons and our, our daughters, but especially our sons, as he mentioned specifically here. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21. He said, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, lest what? Lest they be discouraged. Well, Considering what I just said about people discouraging people, then who discourages sons? Fathers. Is that what it said? The attitude of a father towards his son. Maybe the way he expects him to be, and he's not under his design of everything he wants him to be, he's pretty tough. 
There are a thousand, thousand stories of boys growing up telling you how much of a difficult relationship they had with their dad or their mother, but especially with their dad. Every boy I've ever known likes to tell the story of how, boy, I tell you, my dad took me out back when I'm, he, you know, because my dad never did that to me. I don't think my dad ever spanked me. I don't know that he ever even seriously hollered at me. Now, I was called names all my life. I don't mean that, but I don't know that my dad ever did spank me. I don't think I ever was afraid of him. I don't think there was ever any problem with him. So I never had this being discouraged by my dad experience. But let me read for you something that Albert Barnes said in his commentary. Now, Albert Barnes was a theologian in the 1880s, a new kind of Presbyterian. He wrote this about Colossians chapter 3. He wrote a little more than this, but I want to read this. The part that says, lest they be discouraged. He said, lest by your continual finding fault with them, they should lose all courage and despair of ever pleasing you. You know, I think I've been there. I think I've done that. But think of it. Lest by continually finding fault with them, they lose all courage and despair of ever pleasing you. Children should not be flattered, but they should be encouraged. They should not be so praised as to make them vain and proud, but they should be commended when they do well. He who always finds fault with a child, who is never satisfied with what he does, who scolds and frets and complains, let him do as he will, breaks his spirit and soon destroys the delicate texture of his soul of all desire of well-doing. The child in despair soon gives over every effort to please. He becomes sullen, morose, he even used the word stupid, and indifferent to all the motives that can be presented to him. And he becomes, to a great extent, indifferent as to what he does, since all that he does meets with the same reception from his parent. You know, he doesn't do well. He's going to be told he didn't do well. Why try? See, this is a kind of discouragement that the Bible addresses about parenting. I have never had a perfect child. I'm sorry, this bunch of them are here. They are now. <laughs> but more to the truth, they never had a perfect parent. You know, the way I grew up, the system of living that I had in me was what I passed on. And when things didn't work well for me the way I wanted them to, all I knew to do was holler. The kid gets used to being hollered at, and next thing you know, he knows whatever he does, he's going to get hollered at. Big deal, why try? I'm just trying to stay out of your dad's way. Is he up yet? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm gone, school by. I just don't want to be, because I don't want to be told all day long what I can't do and what I'm not. Because I don't want to grow up with a mental game like that. Because one of these days, there'll be an opportunity for me to do something, and I'm already convinced I can't do it. And I draw back. Albert Barnes said, you get morose or sullen. Why try? If I do try my very best and I do my very best, he'll find something wrong with something that I did. So I can't do right. Every kid 
Every daughter, every daughter needs encouragement. A woman told me one time she was teaching her daughter how to make up her bed every morning. You know, when you get up every morning before you go to school, you have to make your bed up. I think that's child abuse today, but she said, you know, a lot of kids do. I think it's great. Boys can learn that too, but she said she went in one day, her child was gone, whatever, young and little, was playing or doing something, but she made her bed up, and it was terrible. Covers weren't straight, and the pillows were not exactly right, and it didn't look good, but she praised her daughter. Now, she didn't praise her because she did a good job. She praised her because she did her best. This is what she could do. Thank you. That was good. I think later on she might have gone in and kind of straightened it up a little bit. Some mothers are like that. Daddy wouldn't do it, but, you know, Mom wouldn't. And so that happens. There's not a soul in this room that doesn't like to be encouraged, even if you're not doing your best. Sometimes there are things that are going on we can't see. Sometimes there are things that are happening that we don't understand. Listen, our words to our children are like building blocks or they're like hammers. They either put things together and give them something to work towards or we just beat it down at the beginning. I don't know how much of this I wanted to say this morning because I think, well, you're preaching to yourself this morning, but that's true. You know, when the Bible tells us we're to speak what edifies, that means that involves our children too, doesn't it? Aren't they still people? Aren't kids people? Of course they are. Our daughters and our sons, they need to be encouraged. And that's just the way it is. And in the church, there are those who are weak and beaten down. There are probably some of you here today that aren't convinced you're ever going to amount to much. You probably never will be able to do much. Nobody will ever shake your hand because you did a good job. Maybe you think like that. Maybe some of you kids think, why should I get involved? You know, I'll just fail. Maybe you think like that. So your pastor would say, so what if you do fail? What if he had you come here on a cleanup day and the first thing you did was step in a pan of cleaning fluid, knock it over on two or three people and got water on everybody, a pan full of water. We're not going to grab you by the seat of your pants and the back of your shirt and let you go out the side door. We're just going to say, well, clean it up. It doesn't mean you can't scold a child. doesn't mean you can't deal with one. Wrong is wrong, isn't it? Somebody's wrong, you tell them you're wrong, but you can speak the truth. How? In a constructive, loving way. You know, all these kids, well, two of these are mine. I can fuss it, two of them. And I can kind of breathe hard on the other ones, but I want them to do well. But I'm just a grandfather. You know, I'm just a papaw. But that still means I can pray. And I can see faults and flaws. I think sometimes I see a little Tom in there, a little Tommy. And I think, oh, get your switch out. (laughs) Maybe it's not so much to switch, because see, that was the way I grew up. You just got to switch. Maybe it's the switch plus a little, sit down, let me talk to you. You may not be listening to understand what I'm telling you, but I'm obligated as a father by God Almighty as your parent to give you good information. 
Now, if you don't get it, I'm going to tell you again, and we're going to have this conversation again with the switch again. But I care about your life. I care about your soul. I want God to be able to use you. I want you to have some value to whoever you're around because you have value to me, but I want you to know that. In spite of your weaknesses and your mistakes and your flaws and some of those things, I think if I hit me a big stick, I will be patient and deal with it. Let me ask you a question this morning. What is the cause of discouragement for us? Again, I've said everybody in here has been discouraged one way or another. What is the cause of our discouragement? Is it because we fainted? We fainted. You know, the Bible says if you faint in the day of adversity, that says your strength is small. It didn't say you don't have strength. It just said it's not very big yet. When Peter began to sink, was that a failure of some sort? But Jesus said, oh, you have little faith. He didn't say, oh, you have no faith, did he? That's right. So when he picked him back up, didn't he? Or did he just put his hand on when that head was going down, just put that foot on there and then lay down, let the whale get you or something? No. Peter sunk. Right in the middle of the waves with the same power that Jesus had. He, ah, he did that. Boy, in the faith camp years ago, while we had put a foot on, a bunch of them put a foot on his head. You ain't going to run with us. Uh-uh, you fail. You know, Jesus wasn't like that, was he? Peter fainted right there in the ocean. Jesus grabbed him with the hair of his head and pulled him right back up. No, I mean, Jesus reached out and picked him up and restored him. While he was failing, walked him back to the boat and got in the boat with him. Why didn't he discard him? Why didn't he throw him away? Because Jesus said, I didn't choose you to discard you or cast you away. I didn't choose a perfect soul to follow me. I didn't choose somebody who was bulletproof or fail-proof. I chose an ordinary human being. Jesus said, I lived as one. I know what you're going through. I've been tempted in all points like you have. He picked him up and brought him back. In the old days, I don't know that we would have done that. Just like in the old days, in John chapter 8, a woman was taken in adultery. Remember that? She was caught in the very act, the Bible said. And these men brought her to Jesus. And they were fixing to stone her because that's what the law said. We're going to get rid of this vile woman. Boy, they'd kill a lot of them today, wouldn't they? But anyway, they picked up these stones and they asked Jesus, what does the Bible say? What do you think we ought to do, teacher? You know what he said? Remember the story? Whoever among you has never messed up before, you throw the first stone. You know what they did? They all dropped their rocks. They dropped their stones and they walked off because their hearts smote them. They were all condemned by their own conscience because they knew in their humanity they messed up themselves. Not like that, but what's worse? Gossip or adultery? Sin is what? Sin. And that woman stood there, and they all walked off, and Jesus said, where's all your accusers? Has anybody condemned you? Where are all those who condemn you? Or have you been condemned? Remember what she said? No, man. Know what he said? 
Remember what Jesus said to this adulterous woman? He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Would that be encouraging? She didn't stand there and say, you mean I'm not a throwaway Christian? You're not going to cast me out because of the terrible mistake I just made? No. You were with him, Peter. We saw you're one of them. He said, I blankety blank never knew him. I wouldn't walk with you. Couldn't pay me to get with him. Remember that about Peter? Did he mess up? Peter messed up pretty bad in my estimation. Jesus went all the way from Jerusalem, all the way up the Jordan Valley to the Sea of Galilee to meet him. One early one morning, met him on a seashore. Didn't talk to the other guys in the narrative we have in the Bible, but just talked to Peter. And he finally said, Peter, I want you to feed my sheep. Me? <laughs> I have I not only sunk, but you also told me to get behind me, Satan. Remember you said that to me, Lord? And <laughs> I know you gave me the keys of the kingdom. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. But, Lord, you don't want to feed your sheep. I I'm 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 mess up too much. You know what Jesus said? I didn't make a bad choice. I didn't make the wrong choice. I want you to feed my sheep. Me? Yeah. I want ordinary people that know what it's like to go through difficult things in my life. See, when you've had a difficult time, you can help people in difficult times. I think he said that in first. Corinthians chapter 1, he said, God has comforted us with the kind of comfort that we should also comfort others. Remember that? Something like that? The experience I had of being comforted by the Lord, even though I didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve to be forgiven or restored or reclaimed. I didn't deserve it. And Lord, it's kind of a humbling feeling, but I know now I can make this. I know I can make it. I know you're for me and not against me. I know you're on my side. I, with a bowed head, thank you, Lord God. And you run to somebody and say, well, I don't know if I can do it. Or hey, wait a minute. Come here. Come here. I know exactly how you feel. I've been there myself. And that's exactly what Jesus says to us. I've been tempted with the same things you have. He didn't fail any of them, but he was tempted. He came back to his own zigzag and found things tore up. He heard what the ten spies said. He knows what a child feels when this or that. Not that he was verbally abused, but he understands. That's why we can all come boldly to the throne of grace to find help when? In a time of need. Well, I don't deserve to be there. You absolutely deserve to be there. He gave it to you to be there. He didn't cast you away when he saved you. He made you his. And he that started a good work in any of us is going to finish that work. Because he's God. What did David do at Ziklag? The Bible said when he was discouraged, he strengthened himself in the Lord. In Psalm 43 there where we were, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? The next verse says, oh, send out thy light and thy truth. And let them lead me. Does it say that? I want you to look at it carefully. Oh, send out thy light 
and thy truth and let them do what? Lead me or bring me unto thy holy hill and to thy tabernacle. Then I will come before God with praise. Why? Because God, when God speaks, it's not like when man speaks. Man speaks and tells me what I can't do. I can never be sure. Uh, you know, you don't know. The best doctors in the world, the ones that have the, the most sincere, will tell you, we'll try. We don't know that. We can't guarantee you this is going to work, but it's pretty sure. But God never says, I can't guarantee you that his word won't work. Never says that. It's never too hard for God. He never says anything he can't do. Nothing is too difficult for thee. And he always cares. Your loneliest night when you're walking in, in the gloom of your defeat, he cares. You never get away from God. Even when it doesn't seem like he's near, he's near. Even when it doesn't seem like he cares, he cares. Even when your prayer doesn't seem to be heard, he heard it. And the arrow is on its way. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. In the meantime, boy, it's a war zone. It is a war zone. But God, God who is rich in his mercy, he said to us, oh, send out your light and your truth. Lord, let the Holy Spirit, I would probably in New Testament words, Lord, cause your Holy Spirit to resurrect the words that I have heard that I know were in me. Let him bring those words to my mind because God's word is edifying and encouraging. Because God tells me that I'm not a failure. God tells me that I'm going to heaven. God tells me that he loves me, that he cares about me, that he is walking with me and talking with me and never leave me nor forsake me and is going to make sure that what he started with me, he's going to finish it with me. And when I've gone through all the things I've gone through in life, he says he will himself finally, as we said last week in 1 Peter 5, 9, he will perfect and strengthen and establish us. He's not going to leave me alone. I'm going to look back at the trail in my life as some of the things were, oh, I don't want to labor the point. I remember some time at night praying about one of my kids, and this long time ago, and that nothing was better. In fact, it seemed to be worse. And I remember one time I said, well, forget it. About like that. Well, just forget it. You don't care anyway. You say, I wouldn't talk to God like that. Well, you shouldn't. But, you know, in my condition... At the time, I said, hey, forget it. I don't want you, you. You obviously don't want to do anything about it. But so forget it. I would just. And then, of course, a tear comes in your eye. You say, I, don't, I didn't mean that. What if we said something like that to God? Does he drop us? How many times in the Psalms did the psalmist complain that, God, you're not doing something? Why am I mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? You're my strength. I've assigned myself to be under the spout where the glory comes out. And man, I am hurting all over. God hadn't gone anywhere. Sometimes a still small voice. That voice that resurrects the word on the inside of you says, open your mouth and worship God for his goodness. 
His goodness, yeah. Thank God for his word, for his promises. Before his promises ever manifested, thank him for them. You say, well, I don't want to. That's why it's not working right. Because you're thinking more about your problem than you are his solution. You need to praise the Lord. You mean praise him like giving him thanks? Yeah. But Lord, I failed. Well, you failed because you were afraid you were going to die. I'm not sure my friend Guthrie didn't go through that same thing. You're going to die. The fact, I think he was told you're about to die. You're going to die at any moment. That's what a man's trained to say in his study and understanding of the medical world. That's when your blood pressure was. It was 200 plus over 100 plus or something. And they said, oh, you're going to blow up. And I asked him, I said, is that high? I mean, is that pretty high? He said, oh, man. Well, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's normal. I do not want to know. I hope I never know. Said, well, you might, I, well, I just go back to God and said, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, and if he can fearfully and wonderfully make me, he can fix anything that is little and tiny or big and fancy. He can fix it. But anyway, you know, when you think you're going to die, who wants to die? I mean, who wants to leave you? You know, all your grandkids are now being born. You're at an age now where you can sort of draw back a little bit and watch the... You just watch the wind blow a little bit. We saw that this week. Or maybe you're at a time in which, you know, you're, you slow down a little bit and you just like to ride around, go places with your wife or your husband and enjoy life in a way you've never been able to enjoy because you've been so busy. Who wants to die and leave all that behind? And yet you start reading the Bible and you say the things that are important are not things in this world. It's not having it that way. It's God. You think, Lord, you mean I have to give up even the idea? It depends on who you are and how you read it. But for me, there's no value in this world without God. None. And when your work is done and it's over, God will let you enjoy life. He let David live an old age, good years. He said, with long life, he'll satisfy us. And when man's lived his life and he can look back at all the years and behind him and say, you know, God has blessed me a bunch. He doesn't regret leaving the world because he knows where he's going. I'm just talking about an attitude now. It's harder now for things to be discouraging in my life than it used to be. Because I've learned more. My focus is better now. That doesn't mean I don't get troubled by some of you or my family, you know, or kids or something, but it's different. It's different now than it once was. But anyway, sometimes we fail because of pain. I know people have, because of pain, had to do something. And people who don't have any pain say, well, why do you do that? Well, you know, I may not understand either, but I've never had that kind of pain. I don't know what it's like to not be able to get up and not be able to walk or not be able to stand. I knew a preacher one time who in the pulpit just passed out while he was preaching because of pain. He just went down. Pain. Brother Guthrie just went down. He couldn't function with that kind of pain going on all the time. So he had to do something about it, he said. 
There's a lot of reasons that we can give as to why we didn't do well, why we drew back. But every time we start thinking of those reasons, they have a discouraging effect upon us. I don't mind you coming to me and said, brother, sister, you failed. You messed up. You should have done better than that, but you didn't. Now, he still loves you. He still cares about you. There's some things you got to work on in your life, and he will because he didn't choose you to fall apart. He just let you one time when you fell apart show you how easy it is. But he's going to fix it. He's going to fix it. You're going to get it back together. And what an encourager you're going to be. What an encourager you're going to be when you are able to talk to somebody and say, well, you know, I don't know. It's about that. I don't know. Yeah, you will know. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4. You will know. You'll be an encourager. I would think all of you would like to be an encourager. The kind of person that people like to see coming. Oh, here comes brother so, here comes sister so and say, hey, how you doing? Come on in. Instead of saying, hey, how you doing? What's uh, everything all right? Okay. Well, I, um, yeah, okay, um, I got to go. Wouldn't it be nice for somebody who's around you a lot is edifying? Somebody who just speaks good things. We're not talking about the turmoil of this or the turmoil of that in the world. I find myself getting in that every now and then. I have to get away and rebuke myself. But wouldn't it be better if we just talked about the good things that God has promised? Oh, the Lord is good, isn't he? You ever been around a person who can't say anything but, oh, the Lord this or the Lord that? Yeah, well, the Lord, oh, the Lord's good. Yeah, I heard the, in the Bible this morning where the Lord said, oh, wait, just praise God. Amen. I like that. I think we should be encouragers. I think that we should edify one another. I don't mean by flattery. Oh, you're the most wonderful thing I have ever seen. No, you're not. I don't mean that. I know there's times I've said, and I, of course I'm thinking about it. I've been on this all for two weeks now, but I've just thought about this week of how many opportunities I have to edify people. How you doing? It's good to see you. How's everything going in your life? Good. And they say, well, I got to, well, praise God. God's faithful. He'll take care of it. Just trust him. You know, people can't listen to that all day long and say, you're just depressing me. <laughs> no, you're giving hope. Hope is an encouraging thing. When you do realize you can do all things through Christ. Look at this in 2 Corinthians 4. You're going through all kinds of difficulties and trials and troubles. Here's what Paul wrote from verses 8 to 10. He said, we are troubled. Is it verse 8? We are troubled on every side. Are we? Of course we are. In some form or another, to some degree or another. There's things that you wrestle with in your mind things that agitate you or things that you are told you cannot cope with. You're troubled about stuff. The word trouble means to oppress. It's the word distress. He said, but or yet, we're not what? We're not distressed. That is, we're not unable to continue on. 
in spite of what the devil's doing, in spite of the pressure that I'm going on through my work or in my home or in my marriage. I am not willing to throw in the towel and give up. I've got something working inside of me that is preventing that. Or in the next verse, we are perplexed. We don't know how to proceed. We don't know what word to say. We don't know how to do what we're doing. We're perplexed, but we are not in despair. We are not without help. We have a word from God, so we don't have to fall apart. He said we are persecuted. but not forsaken. I love that. Let me say it again. We are persecuted. Those are the little things, the big things the world says or does. Some countries are killing Christians. That's persecution. In some places, they talk about Christians. Oh, oh, over in America. But he said, but we're not forsaken. There's something about what God has taught us that causes us to rise above this stuff. Do you hear what I'm saying? There's something about what God is teaching us that is starting to lodge itself and and get a grip on the tables of our heart, and it's beginning to have an influence on our life. Yes, we're going through persecution. Yes, there are all kinds of distresses. Yes, we are perplexed, but it's not defeating us anymore. We're not throwing in the towel. We don't need a visit. We're overcoming. Hallelujah. At the end he says that we are cast down by our enemies, but we're not destroyed. We're still in this room. We're still here. We'll be here the next time we meet. We're not quitters. And everything, the pressure we're going through, some of you know what it's like, whether it's pain in your body or a threat of some symptom that is very serious. And you know what your body language is saying to you and the devil has it? We know that. But God has something to say too, doesn't he? Your body says you're going to die. What does God say? Well, I don't know. We'll find out. Give the Spirit something to encourage you with. Because we're battling as we battle discouragement. One of the weapons of our warfare is the Word of God. That's our weapon. That's the sword that we weld in the heat of the battle. Jesus said, it is written. This is how we win our battles. This is how we fight. Perhaps when it comes to the end, back to something I alluded to earlier, maybe in the teaching process, in the relating process, in our relational association with God, coming to him with all kinds of corruptions and ugly stuff that we grew up with. You know, our mind has to be re- renewed. So it, you come to him with the old one and your patterns of thought and your thinking and why you cry and whine and don't you want to give up and quit. You brought that to God when he saved you. And he set you down in a quiet place like this to remind you that he didn't save you because you had it all put together before you got here. Every one of us were losers. Everybody in this room was a loser. Nobody got it right. Nobody just naturally gets it right. Some have a pleasant personality. Some are different. But God chose you knowing you were like that. Because there is no hopeless soul in this room which cannot be changed to find his pleasure in God and for God to find his pleasure in that person. So God begins working in us. 
God is at work in us both to will and what to do of his good pleasure. And we get down. Sometimes we do fall apart. Oh, I've said other things to God in my life growing up. One time I said, get somebody else to do it. I don't want to do it anymore. I quit. I didn't last long, but after I said that, my heart smote me. And I had to hurry back and hope I could cry enough. Don't, don't do that. I didn't mean it. You can just feel so lousy. And yet, when that word keeps coming, if you will listen, God keeps hiding that word in your heart, it becomes a sword. So you don't fall apart anymore. You don't give up anymore. You don't despair anymore. You're aware of all your weaknesses and your faults and your failings, and the devil wants to let you keep it on your mind, but you just don't give in to it. I can do all things through Christ. Boy, it doesn't look like it, but I can. I can do all things through Christ. God is chastening me. He's teaching me. He's in the changing process. It involves chasing. Chasing could be verbal. It could be discipline. But God cares about everybody in this room. He's not going to leave you the way you were when he chose you. He's going to bring you to his kingdom, and he's going to change your life. And when you fail and you feel like he's the furthest away, he is as close then as he was when he first saved you. He's gone nowhere. He just wants you to relate to him, not on the basis of feelings, but on the basis of knowledge. I know in whom I have believed. Paul put it together in 2 Corinthians 12. I've been shipwrecked. I've been run out of town. I've been hungry a lot. I've had to do without a lot. I've had abundance. I've had nothing. I've been forsaken and deserted you know what he said? He said all of this, all of this in 1 Corinthians 1, he said all of this was for your good because I have learned how to cope. And I can tell you that we're going to go through struggles and suffering, but we can cope. Let me tell you how to do it. Hide the word in your heart. Give the Holy Spirit something to use as a sword so that you can begin to smite those unseen powers of darkness out there. That's how we win. That's the way this thing works. Now, in closing, everybody in this room, everybody who can hear me and listen and watch, you should strengthen yourself in the Lord by telling yourself, not falsehood, but if you have been born again and you know you've been born again and you are aware of that and you know that your life has truly changed, you need to tell yourself, first of all, that because I'm born again, I know God is with me. He didn't say he'd be with me as long as I performed. He just said he would be with me, period. I know he's on my side. The second thing I like to know, you can turn to this, Isaiah 49. The second thing that I want to know is that God who is with me loves me. God loves me. Isaiah 49 what a wonderful passage of Scripture. Isaiah 49, in verse 13. Sing, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted his people, and he will have mercy on his afflicted. So they are afflicted. But Zion said, 
the Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. It didn't work. Uh-oh. Listen to this. When they said, the Lord's forsaken me, verse 15, can a woman forget her sucking child or her nursing child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet I will never forget you, even though you're afflicted and you failed. Behold, verse 16. You want to underline that in your Bible. You, you might want to draw a circle around verse 16. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually about me. Isn't that wonderful? What weak soul in this room? Who's the weakest one in this room after me? Who's the weakest? You realize that in spite of that, the Almighty God will never leave you nor forsake you. Though you rattle around in his palm a little bit, sometimes he can squeeze you back into place. Never leave you nor forsake you. He said in Jeremiah 31, you know, turn to Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3, he said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Everlasting. Not for a while. Not as long as you perform. Not as long as you don't drop the ball. But from the time he chose you until the time you walk into the portals of glory, he loves you. He doesn't love you less if you fail. He doesn't love you more when you win. His love is without measure. That's what encourages me. I don't have a license to fail. I hate failure. I don't want to fail. I don't have a good message. I don't have anything to say if I fail all the time. But I fail sometimes. I fail in my own eyes. Maybe not in yours, but in my own estimation. I could do better. But here's, he's always there. I have to repent. We all do. We have to gather ourselves together. And we have to strengthen ourselves in the Lord and let the word of God begin to saturate our mind. And he just, Lord, lift me up and let me stand. And he does that. That's why some of you, we're going to one day get it all of you. That's why some of you come to church on some days and you're, whoo, yeah. You had a good week. What if you had that when you had a bad week? I'd say, you know something. Brother, you have conquered and you have won. But God loves me. And though he fall, close with this. Our last verse, Psalm 37. Psalms 37. Oh, you're going to love this, and it's free. It's free this morning. Psalms 37. What a psalm. Verse 24. Listen to this. Let's get 23 so you'll be excited about that. The steps of a good man or a good woman are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Now, Follow me, though his steps be ordered. What also can happen in the next verse? Though he fall? Whoa, time out. You mean to tell me that God can say, You're, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and though he fall, he will be kicked out of the kingdom. Though he fall, though he fall, he shall not be Cast down. You ought to wear your tennis shoes when you read that so you can run. 
If you got good carpet, take your shoes off when you read that and head through the house. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. Why? Wait a minute. You mean if you fall, the Lord is still upholding you? Oh, praise God. What a relief. Though he fall, he shall not utterly be cast away, but he shall be held up. My steps are ordered by the Lord. I'm going in a direction that he has for me and all the training and the change that needs to take place in my life. And it involves sometimes falling, but it never involves casting you off. Look at verse 28. Got to close with this one too. We got to close with some more. 37 verse 28. For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved Forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. Let me ask you a question before you go home. Are you preserved? Are you perfect yet? Ooh. We went from an amen to an oh me. Oh me. But guess what? In spite of all of that, who's on your side? The Lord. With your weaknesses, with your deficiencies, and with your problems, which you are geared to overcome them and not be proud of them or not tolerate them. You deal with them, but God is with you and he will never let you go. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, bless this word to our hearts so that nobody in the sound of my voice will ever let go, give up or walk away. That everybody who can hear me, Lord, if they can identify a problem in their life, if they can see a need in their life, that you will cause them to come to you and cry out. Because only your people will do that and plead with you, Lord, in the valley of decision or in a bedroom, wherever they are, in a car, in a church seat to plead with you, to desire for the Lord to be in total control of her life. I thank you, Father, that even though this room is full of people that have one time or another failed, we've all some way or another been discouraged. You have rescued us. You have lifted us up like you did Peter. You have rescued us as a perishing. You have brought us to yourself. As in the Song of Solomon, to your banqueting table, and Lord, your banner over us is love. That you care, and the work you started with us, you're going to complete it. Now, in the meantime, Lord, help us to bear down and do better. To rebuke ourselves for our weaknesses and our mental failures and so forth. Help us to get back and resettle and grip the plow a little tighter. Give us that testimony, dear God, I ask it in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Would you stand to your feet? He is able to keep me from falling and to present me before his glorious throne.